Thanks for pressing play. Today, all things security, new geopolitical threats, the new domains of warfare, and a look at evil crimes through the eyes of the legendary public servants who solve them. This is a very fun, insight-packed, real conversation with one of America's highest-profile crime-fighting voices. That's right, Morgan Wright is back. And if you don't know him by chance, he's an internationally recognized expert on cybersecurity and terrorism, identity theft, and privacy. When he testified before Congress on healthcare.gov, the federal U.S. government changed how it collected and personally and used personally identifiable information. Morgan has been on pretty much every major media platform, news media, print, you name it, everywhere on the interweb. Um, he was also a senior advisor to the U.S. State Department anti-terrorism program and a senior law enforcement advisor for the 2012 Republican National Convention. He also served over 18 years in state and local law enforcement. Morgan has developed solutions in defense, justice, and intelligence for the largest technology companies in the world. And he's also the co-host of a red-hot new podcast called Game of Crimes that shines a light on the women and men who serve and protect. Also, you should know about this conversation. It starts off with a wacky diversion that is, um, shall I say, an unexpected place for a business podcast <laughs> to get started. And that's because, um, you know, when Morgan and I get together, there is a little bit of attention deficit theater going on. All right. This is Christopher Lockett, Follow Your Different. And we are on a mission to champion real, different dialogues. In an era where authentic conversation is in rapid decline, Line, we believe it's time for a big dose of different conversation. My friends at Hallow App are the world's first real relationship network. Uh, if you're done with social media algorithms that manipulate what we see and have a proven detrimental uh, impact on people and society, it's time for you to check out Hallow App at HallowApp.com. No ads, no bots, no likes, no trolls, no followers, no algorithms, no influencers, no censorship, no photo filters, no feed fatigue, no misinformation, no echo chambers. Hallow App. Let's get real. Search for H-A-L-L-O-A-P-P in your app store of choice or go to HallowApp.com. And don't forget to check out Category Pirates at CategoryPirates.com. It's sort of like the uh, HBR, Harvard Business Review, if it was written for and by pirates. And now, hey-ho, let's go. Morgan Wright, it sure is great to see you. It feels like it's been too long. How are you, brother? Man, I'm living the dream every single day. My dream was to go to Canada and get tested for COVID once again on a, quote, random test that was not random. They were pulling everybody from America aside. But look on the bright side. I didn't have to pay for my test to come back into the United States. So, Oh, well, there you go. And how was how did you do on your COVID testing? Did you get an A? Uh, I flunked it. So I was negative. No. Yeah. Uh, passed it flying colors. They actually got back to me that same day. It's like, you know, it's all good. But just having broken my nose a couple of times and having been operated on anything that goes near my nose or up my nose, it's like, uh, 
I assume you had a deviated septum. I had a devi- I have. I've had a deviated septum. I've had a rhinoplasty done. I mean, a septoplasty done. Um, I've broken my nose twice. One time, the first time it was broken, I was a kid, so it kind of fixed itself. The second time, when I was in the State Patrol Academy, they actually had to use needles, probably about two inches to three inches long, loaded with morphine. They injected under each side of my nose deadened it. I was actually on a morphine drip. Then they used that to deaden it further. And then they basically used the version of knitting needles to move my nose back into place, stuck two what they call nasal tampons in there. These are dry things, wedges that you fill them up with water, then they expand to hold my nose in place. So Chris, I got a picture of me graduating state patrol in my uniform, looking good, looking sharp and looking good. Ought to be in Hollywood with my nose looking like somebody shoved a fucking basketball up inside my nose. I look like I got grapes inside each nostril. That's how blown out my nose was. Well, I mean, you're such an attractive man. It probably, you probably still, still looked handsome. Uh, it looked kind of bad. <laughs> 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 and for, for like two months after that, if you just even looked at my nose or thought about touching my nose, I was going to kill you. It's like, don't even come near that. It was so sensitive. Just, uh and it's, you know, you're making me think about boxing and, and fighting yep. and mixed martial arts and shit. Uh, so ma- random segue, maybe or pseudo random segue. Did you ever get punched really, you know, f- well by somebody you were trying to apprehend when you were a trooper or when you were out in the out in the, the world copper. lassoing um, bad guys? Anybody ever give you a good whack? Uh, I got kicked in the nards by a woman one time. Wow. And what was she wearing on her feet? Uh, they were cowboy boots. Oh, um, fuck. <laughs> I even remember her name. I won't use it, but uh, I had had her arrested. And my mistake was I was walking around her. I had her in handcuffs. You know, I'm trying to do limited pat down and stuff and uh, started to walk around her. And I thought she was starting to stumble back. But what she was doing was loading up her right leg. And she reached out. And it's not so much the tip, uh, the boot that caught me, but it went right underneath that. But it's the whole boot just basically mashed everything. And it's like... Okay, that hurts. Um, you know, so like a mule kick from behind, like no, it was it was a forward kick. But, oh, it was um, a forward kick. But instead of hitting me, you know, with the point of the toe, it's kind of like it grazed up. But then the heel caught everything, and then she just pushed forward and smashed everything, smashed the family jewels. She got the full boot. Yep. right under your <laughs> right under the terrible. scrotum. Yep. Right under exactly. <laughs> I had the scrotum smasher. <laughs> Although, you know, I've once heard, uh, now not from a medical professional, that, that that area between your scrotum and your ass is called the scrotash. Never heard that. No. Never heard that. So did she kick you there in the scrotash? It was pretty close. Yeah, she mashed everything, I think, into that area. If she'd mashed it a couple inches further, I might have been having to take a, a dump to get rid of my testicles. I don't know. It was that bad. <laughs> <laughs> we have sunk so far and we're not even two minutes into this fucking a yeah it's a good thing nobody listens um uh, well that's exciting um and um you know off the top uh you know there's a lot going on in in, in your world in terms of what you're doing uh in your career but also in broadly in the world of security and safety and policing and i mean the the, the domain in which you play is um uh, a fascinating conversation uh, place right now and, and, and a lot going on. And so where would you like to start, doctor? Would you like to start with security and technology or policing or some of the shit you're doing or wh- where's your mind at? 
Well, one thing, Murph says hello. So Steve Murphy and I, we, we actually have our own podcast now called Game of Crimes. We talk, I know. We, by the way, inspired us, true form, long form, true crime podcast. Our interviews are long. When I mean, we're they're always two-parters. So that's actually been a fun part because it kind of gets you back into it. But in the other part of the world, it's like, uh, there's a lot of stuff going on. Actually, the keynote I gave in Canada at the cybersecurity conference um, because uh, I, I, you know, believe it or not, I read what you send out in the emails, your category pirates and stuff like that. But, you know, I, I talk about, I say, what can Elon Musk and SpaceX teach us about cybersecurity and ransomware? And my, my first premise is, who's the richest guy in the world right now? It's Elon, right? He's richer. He's three times worth three times what Warren Buffett is. He's worth more than Warren Buffett and Bill Gates combined. So what does that tell you? His way of thinking different and creating categories and doing stuff is having resonance. So I, I lead off with saying, what is the one thing he did to basically revolutionize the space industry? He said, why can't we just reuse rockets? Rockets go up. Why can't they come back down? Because we've had so many people who've been so invested in building shit that burns up in the atmosphere. Why? So they can build more of the same shit and sell you the same shit and have you buy the same shit. Well, I'm a taxpayer and I'm offended by that. I want to know why can't I reuse it, right? This isn't a napkin that you use once and you throw away. This is, you know, can't, why can't, so I get to thinking about it. And so what I say is the problem isn't the problem. The problem is the way we think about the problem. And that's not what counts. The, the What really counts is the way our adversaries think about the problem. And they beat us every time because they outthink us about what to do. So the solar winds uh, compromise that happened, uh, this, what they call sunburst. Why did that work? Because Christopher, for so long, everybody thought we get software, we put it in our little thing called the sandbox, comrade. We watch it for three days, nothing happens. We put it into our production environment. What did they do? Oh, comrade, we wait 10 days. We wait 12 days. And we it wasn't a technological exploit. It was a human exploit. We exploited the way we thought about the problem. By the way, uh, I, I'm going to make an assumption here, Christopher, that you have never robbed a bank. That is true. And by the way, this is a side note, but uh, when I went to go get my international traveler thing, you know, and you got to submit to proctology exam by the, the government mm -hmm. and all that stuff. And then you got to go in for a, um, a Q&A session with a, a government officer who issues this thing, right? And I'm there with my wife. And sort of she's doing her thing with her officer and I'm doing my thing with my officer. And they're very friendly and fun about all of it. And the, m many of the questions are funny. But one of the questions is, have you ever been arrested in any country, even if you weren't charged? And I said to the guy, no. And he looked at me and he said, come on, you've been arrested. <laughs> I said, no, I haven't. You know, I'm sitting there in a T-shirt, my tattoos are out. You yeah. know, I look like the criminal that I look like. And, you know, and he was playful with me about it, but he goes, you didn't get arrested one time in Singapore for drinking too much. He's like, come on. I said, I know it, it sounds insane. Uh, it doesn't look like it's possible, but I swear on Bibles or anything else you want me to swear. I have never even been arrested. Never mind uh, charged with anything, but, but I digress. <laughs> <laughs> well, so the reason I asked, have you ever robbed a bank? When you look at a bank and the way banks are designed and their security measures are designed, who do you think has designed those security measures? The bank teller who has never robbed a bank in their life, who just sits there and they get robbed? Or do you design countermeasures because you, by talking to bank robbers who figure out how to rob banks and get past all the security systems, right? The problem is this, this industry for too long has spent time of let's get in our own little room, let's get our echo chamber going, and we'll build the solution we think we want to build because it's great and we think this is the way, we think this is what the problem is. That And they're wrong. That's not the problem. The problem is the way you think about the problem, and our adversaries exploit that day after day. So uh, why is it that we have 
in the for the love of God, how much money have we spent in the last 10 years, 20 years on cybersecurity, Christopher? And are we any better off today than we were five years ago? Uh, you're the expert, but me looking at it as a kind of layman business person, no, not only does it not look like we're better off, uh, as somebody who knows the technology industry, my suspicion, I haven't looked at data, but given the accelerating rate of new category innovation, each one of those new innovations potentially represents a new type yep. or new category of security threat. So it would seem to me as innovation accelerates the, let's just call it opportunity for assholes to do asshole things also accelerates, but but you, you hopefully you'll tell me. Well, no, look, you, you absolutely hit it right, right? Why, why build something to solve a problem nobody has or doesn't think that they have, right? If it's not a problem we're solving, right? The reason that these companies are getting money is investors and the market is finding out that, hey, this is a problem we're solving. Um, no, no, I'm not doing a commercial. I mean, the, one of the people I advise is a company called Sentinel One. They went public uh, June 28th. It was the largest cybersecurity IPO in history. Uh, twice of what CrowdStrike was, almost twice of what CrowdStrike was back in June of 2018. So in just two years, you know, going on two to three years, the IPO itself has doubled. So it was a 1.2 billion. Their market cap the first day exceeded 11 and a half, 12 billion dollars. It is a huge area for the use of artificial intelligence, machine learning, you know, autonomous response. And so, yeah, I think we have spent so much money. I'm actually going to be, uh, we're recording this certain time from the day we're recording it in about three days, I'm going out to a kind of a, I got invited to this invite only, well, invite only, of course, conference, but uh, it's where they're bringing in leaders from both sides of the aisle. Uh, they're bringing in people and I have a session um, and we're talking with some other folks, we're talking about the implications, national security, cybersecurity, what can we do different? And I'm telling them one of the things, and I'm going to tell them, read the fucking book, play bigger. You want to understand the problem. And I, I don't say, I mean, when I, when I evangelize this, it's because it was an epiphany for me when I read it. It's like when I learned about interview and interrogation and other stuff, I found it. And again, it goes back to the whole really defining the problem. And so what I'm going to hit them on is the reason we keep getting the results we have is because of the words you keep using. You keep talking about response and recovery. That means it's already happening. You want an effective, what you're saying is that we should continue to buy effective fire alarms that say, congrats, your house is successfully burned down. Let's start talking about stopping and preventing. And the minute we start doing that, we will start changing what we buy, how we think about the problem, and why is Elon Musk kicking everybody's ass in the space industry is because he thought differently about the problem. He executed differently. And while Bezos and uh, uh, Richard Branson are firing off, they're trying to get their little thing in there. How many times has Elon and his tech and his people been to space and back already? You know, he's just, he's kicking everybody's ass. Well, and you know, the fascinating thing, so thank you for that. And the fascinating thing about that specific point on Elon, and this is one that that somehow gets skated by. And look, I know he's a controversial figure, and I know he's a real wackadoo, and so I'm not, not endorsing everything he does or says. Nope. But nope. but you have to admire him. And on the SpaceX thing, here's here's the one that nobody talks about. SpaceX is the first private company, the first startup ever to put a rocket in space up till that point, unless I miss something they're the only entities to put rockets and astronauts in space were governments. And so here you have a, uh, entrepreneurial tech startup 
that is doing something that heretofore only the government was prior uh, able to do. And and yeah, along come the others, and and hopefully that'll continue to spark competition and innovation and all the good shit. But you know, when people look at the guy, you got to go, hey, listen. He fucking did what no entrepreneur had ever been able to do before and what no private company had ever been able to do before. That's fucking impressive. I'll tell you what's impressive. I just went out and had lunch with a friend of mine. Uh, she's actually in charge of government affairs for SpaceX. She's on a weekly conference call where Elon is on there and leading stuff. And it's interesting to listen to her talk about the way he thinks and about the problem and stuff. Certain things he wants to do. He says, no. I want this. I want X. And everybody's saying, well, no, this is the way we've always done it. So here's an interesting sidebar. I think I'm historically correct on this, but I'm open to uh, being challenged on it. But so speaking of the space program, Christopher, do you know why the solid rocket boosters are the size they are for NASA when they put the space shuttle into orbit? You know what? It's the one defining limitation. This sounds like the beginning of a dirty joke, but okay, I'll play along. Why are they that size, uh, Dr. Wright? (laughs) Railroad tracks. They have to be a certain size to be brought in on the railroad tracks, right? So Because they can't be any bigger than that because they can't get there. What Elon did, and I'm going around uh, getting to another point on the railroad track stuff, he builds everything at one location. So he doesn't have to worry about the constraints of railroad tracks or anything else. It's all built right there. So why are railroad tracks the size that they are? Because that's the, the size that we built the cars. <laughs> no. what? How wide? Imagine the railroad tracks and now imagine being a Roman. In a Roman chariot behind two horses, it's about the width of two horses, is the width of railroad tracks. Why? Because we can trace back the size and the gauge of railroad tracks to the width of a Roman chariot and two horses' asses. So our space program today, its main limitation is defined by the fact that we're still doing the same shit they did 2,000 years ago in Rome. (laughs) I love the way your brain works, Morgan. (laughs) I'm not sure it works. It's a little broken. I'm still figuring this whole shit out. And again, somebody says, well, I don't know if that's right. It doesn't matter. It makes for a great story and it's a great analogy, but think about it. And will we, Christopher, to solve the space program, would we go and rip and replace thousands of miles of railroad track and put in a new gauge or something that makes sense? No, because now we're so invested in the way things have always been done. We're not willing to build a new solution. And that's the problem in cybersecurity, especially, is that we're always, oh, well, this is the way we've always done it. The, the, I, I know I'm going to piss some people off, especially in the defense and military industrial complex. Guys, I've worked in that thing. I held the clearances. I know all the shit that goes on. Their solution to everything is put more people. Well, we need more people. No, we can't hire. It's not about more people. Their fear is that the more you automate things, the more we use technology, the more we make things autonomous, the less people we need. That's less revenue for them, which means less people. So you will see the big people killing off these programs that are innovative are the defense contractors who stand to make billions and billions and billions of dollars. Name me one government program that has ever come in on time and on budget. It never has. No weapon system has ever come in on time and on budget. They don't want cybersecurity to come in on time and on budget. Why? Because that's they, they make a lot of their money on cost overruns. It's a very powerful insight, and it sort of sits next to this idea that um, rarely do people who profit from the way that it is change it to a new way, right? To the way it could be. They don't want to cannibalize it. Right. If you have a vested interest in the way that it is, uh, you you don't tend to look very hard at the way it could be. (laughs) And maybe that's why we stick with that with the Roman model for so long. Well, the thing is, but it's the way Elon, Elon had no, um, had no vested interest. He did not have a sunk cost already into building the way things used to be or the way things are. He built it the way I have this idea. Now I'm going to build it the way the idea needs to be built, you know, um, whether it's elect, whether it's Tesla, whether it's SpaceX, whether it's the boring company, 
you know, it just just continues just continuous ways. And again, I'm not again, I'm not here to tell you Elon's a saint. He's not. You know, uh, he's got his own issues. Putting that side, putting that aside, what I'm saying is, here's somebody who has has had a profound impact on society the same way Steve Jobs did. How many people know they needed an iPhone until they needed an iPhone? Then once they did, it's like, oh my God, you know, and now it's about, he actually took a lesson. I think Steve Jobs took a lesson from Bill Gates because Bill Gates changed basically the computing world because he made it about the software, not the hardware, IBM and their micro channel architecture. It's all going to be about the hardware. No, it's not. It's about the software. And once, once the phone became more about the software, look at everything we're doing now with the phone from, from COVID and, and healthcare and vaccines and passports and whatever else, this little thing has become, and it's all, it's really about the software. So uh, I, I don't know. I don't know where I was going with that. And as usual with you, I'm off in China digging a hole somewhere and we started in Australia. It, it, it's okay. This is, this is a ADHD theater here. So uh, it's par for the course. Speaking of cell phones, we fucking had Marty Cooper, the inventor of the cell phone on the podcast a little while ago. From Bell Labs? Uh, no, uh, Motorola. Well, oh, that's, I'm sorry, Motorola. Yeah, Bell Labs had a role with the fax machine, actually, so. Yes. And so Marty uh, is, is still going strong. He's smart as a whip. He's incredibly, uh, on one hand, you know, he, he understands who he is and what he achieved. Uh, but on the other hand, he's incredibly modest and humble and now he's he, he, all of his attention is focused on the digital divide. He said, you know, there's no reason for this digital divide. Everybody should have access to the Internet. He thinks it's disgusting that we have poverty on planet Earth. And he's taking a run at all of that stuff. Anyway, Mar Marty Mobile is one of the great guys. And he yeah, his new book is called uh, Cutting the Cord. And it's sort of the firsthand account of how the cell phone got created. Anyway, uh, they, they, Time Magazine says he's one of the greatest hundred innovators of all time. Oh, man, that is... Uh, look, I used to carry the Motorola brick. Could, you know, it was a self-defense weapon as well as, uh, you know, communication. Exactly. I had one of those fucking things, too. <laughs> <laughs> and then they came out with the Motorola flip phone, and we thought, that's going to be awesome. Then it was oh, the yeah. Razor. Remember the Razor? Oh, yeah. If you had a Razor, you were the man. I had a Razor. Yeah. Yeah. And actually you were pretty cool when you had that fucking brick too. Nobody else had one. And I had to carry it on a clip in a case on the outside of my pants. You know, I was a detective and I actually had one of those. I got one myself. I wanted to play with it. And I actually learned how to do a hacking without being illegal. Cause looking at the way numbers tumbled and the uh, a channel and the B side of whatever else, it was just, it was fun learning about stuff back then. Cause actually it was truly, you could actually in a legal legitimate way, hack those things or learn a lot about the cell phones back in those days. Yeah. Now, um, what it, sort of look forward for me here. Uh, what do you see 2022 and beyond in, in the whole world of uh, cybersecurity? And I, I don't want to forget you and, I, you and I might bounce off it. I de definitely want to talk about ransomware because it seems like there's oh, yeah. been some interesting stuff going on about that. So, so take me through 2022 and beyond and, and what we can expect uh, in the security world, and then let's talk about in the ransom ransomware world. Say that. Say that fast. Right? Ransomware world. Well, well, <laughs> well be very we'll quiet. Put that well, right next to Wally World. <laughs> think about so very interestingly, about three to four months ago, I was up in New York. I actually got invited. Uh, Martha McCallum at Fox News was doing a special segment basically on the future of warfare. And I was up there, me, the lone uh, civilian guy, with a couple of generals, um, former generals. And interestingly enough, one of the things we talked about were hypersonic missiles. And one of the things I talked about is I said, look, 
you don't have to take down an entire network with hypersonic missiles. All I got to do is, it's like throwing in a flashbang when we used to do, our SWAT teams used to do. It's just enough to distract you for long enough that I can do something you don't see coming. And what just happened, Christopher? China fired a hypersonic missile, caught everybody with their knickers down. Um, and that, to me, is a watershed moment because that gets into, if they're that far advanced on that, where are they at with quantum computing? Where are they at with things? Quantum computing is a game changer. You get that out and really uh, installed the way, it, the way it could be. And I will tell you, um, it will be, uh, that, that's, I don't want to say that's game over, but that's, that's a huge game changer. So I just think from a security standpoint, there's huge issues with China and what they're doing in the South China Sea. A lot of people don't realize uh, China's involvement in Afghanistan and what they've been doing because it, Afghanistan, believe it or not, has a lot of natural resources that are needed for mining and rare earth metals and things like that. They're down in the Congo, the Democratic. But and here's a, here's another thing. Anybody anybody anytime anybody says the Democratic Republic of, it's not. The Democratic Republic of People's, you know, Democratic People's Republic of North Korea is not, right? The Congo is not. We were and gonna so, change the um the town name here to the Democratic Republic of Santa Cruz. Oh yeah, the People's Republic of uh, Maryland is just north of me here, so I'm very familiar <laughs> with that. And Berkeley is a nuclear free zone. Let's not forget they're the first nuclear free zone in the United States. So hey, I want to just slow you down here. So so go back to what the fuck did China just launch? A hypersonic missile. So a hypersonic missile, basically it can travel the earth seven to eight times faster than anything we currently have. And which means is that there's very little defense against a hypersonic missile because your traditional and even your advanced weapon systems can't lock on and can't target. And, you know, it's the equivalent of trying to hit the 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 head, you know, the the tip of a pin of a needle with another needle. I mean, it becomes a very... Uh, it's not like the Patriot system that we have uh, deployed in uh, Israel or other places, part of the Iron Dome, where they can target things, they blow out shrapnel and stuff, and it basically it, it creates kind of a shrapnel cloud and takes out incoming stuff. There, there is very little, if any, defense against a hypersonic missile, which is uh, that basically it's like saying, oh, fuck, you know, here we are, we're the colonial army with musket loaders, and here comes the frickin' uh, U.S. armory, you know, U.S. cavalry in armored tanks with, you know, heavy weapons and stuff. It's it's that kind of a game changer. So, so it's can very they much shoot New York? And we wouldn't, if they shot one of these things at New York, we wouldn't be able to stop it? Is that Not what at you all. just told me? No, no, there's no defense against that hypersonic missile. And we're, we're certain they have this fucking thing? They fired it. It went around the globe. Yeah. I mean, they did what? a launch of it. Yeah. It went around the earth. Yep. I assume a non, uh, 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 a, a, uh, with no warhead on it. Oh, no. Yeah. No warhead. But I mean, it was, they were testing it. In fact, while we're sitting here talking, I'll just pull up a couple details real quick. But uh, now listen, I, I drink a lot and spend some time with my friend, Mary Jane. So maybe I missed this, but was this big news and I missed it? This was huge news. So this just came out. So uh, this came out, uh, this was published November 4th. Visual explainer, how China's hypersonic missile compares to conventional ballistic system. Basically, let's put it this way. It, it, they actually have a great visual here, but I'll tell it to you. Commercial aircraft, 575 miles an hour. The SR-71 Blackbird that can go coast to coast, you know, their old spy plane, 3.4 Mach. Hypersonic flight, speed five to 10 times the speed of sound. The one... Uh, hold on, hold Chinese... on, slow down there, handsome. This fucking thing goes five times the speed of oh, sound. No, 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 no. That's that's called hypersonic flight. Okay. This uh, advanced hypersonic weapons range. This thing, uh, uh, the HTV two speed was fifteen Mach fifteen plus. So this is 
11,418 miles per hour. This is this Chinese missile you're telling me about. That's what I'm trying to say. Yes, uh, Chinese test in, in August was initially reported right on October 16th, right? So yeah, it was, this thing is faster than anything on earth right now. And we have no ability to shoot it down. No ability at whatever to shoot it down, yeah. This thing will come in at a minimum of Mach 5, anywhere above that um, and more. So yeah, we don't have any... Uh, we do not have any defense against it. Is there any evidence they're sharing this technology or selling this technology with our friends in North Korea? I doubt it. This is so far advanced. Uh, North Korea is lucky enough to keep the fucking lights on, you know, and their one internet connection. And they are, they do have some ballistic launched missiles, but this is, this is so far above them. It's like the difference between having a coal fired uh, generator and a nuclear power station. I mean, they're, they're not anywhere near this league. They could share it with them, but there's nothing North Korea could do at this point because there's so much involved from an engineering and a material and an acquisition standpoint. I, I'm more concerned that the fact that China has this, I don't think China will share it with anything because this gives them a huge, huge military advantage and they don't want, by the way, here's a lot of things people don't realize too. People think Russia and China, you know, are like buddies or they're colluding together. Russia has three primary adversaries. It's the US, NATO, and China. Russia has no illusions. Russia knows that China is their main adversary. I mean, we talk about the, Sil the Belt and Road Initiative. Um, they're doing things near the Arctic and with Nordic countries now that cause a lot of concern for Russia. Um, and so, yeah, this is uh, this was a huge, huge game changer from a defense standpoint. Wow, that's amazing. I didn't know that. You also mentioned Afghanistan, and I've done some reading about this. And so, but you're more educated than I am on this. I'm, but what I'm to understand is the Taliban. Uh, there are very few nation states that are really willing to uh, do the cuddle cuddle with the Taliban. But apparently, the Chinese are. They're willing to trade with them. And, and potentially other things. And so tell me what you see going on between China and Afghanistan. Uh, it, look, by the way, here's something. Again, China has had, uh, they have been actively, they're trying to still work on the mines, but they've actually got a mining company and they've been in that country for at least 10 years with mines working on that. And so China has every incentive to monetize what the Taliban have control over now from a country standpoint, from a natural resource standpoint. Um, and so, yeah, I think you'll see, look, prior to this, the number one revenue producer for the Taliban was opium. And actually, uh, the episode we just released on Game of Crimes, Joe uh, Pierasante was a DEA agent, was over there uh, with special forces. His story is he got shot in the head by the Taliban because they were over there to do a counter-narcotics, counter-terror mission to deny them the ability to monetize this to, of opium poppies and growing this and all the equipment it takes. So yeah, if they can transition to where they can now legitimize um, their revenue streams, especially like mining operations, you will not see a country coming in to stop that because now now it's now it's it's always an issue of sovereignty, even with the Taliban in there. But it's not about taking out opium and stuff, you know, and making heroin and stuff. It's this is now. You got legitimate mining, you got materials, you got metals, you've got, you know, raw materials that are going to go be manufactured somewhere. That's a game changer from a revenue standpoint. If they can figure that thing out and get China getting that stuff out of the country, not only will China make a money, they will have a grip on the electronics industry, a grip on the rare metals, uh, earth metals industry. They, they will basically, uh, they'll have everybody by the short hairs. It's incredible. And, you know, the other thing that's incredible, of course, and it just uh, speaks to the pure evil that is the Taliban, is last time I checked, um, 
China wasn't a great place to be Muslim. Ask the Uyghurs. And so it, it is, a, ironic is not the right word. It's just pure disgusting when, a, when an outfit, when an organization that is supposed to be rooted in Islam uh, is willing to transact with a country that um, abuses is probably the kindest way to put it. Hundreds of thousands, if not over a million Muslims. Yeah, here's the other, the enemy and my enemy is my friend. So these guys are willing to uh, put that aside, religious differences aside, cultural differences, because at the end of the day, uh, China hates the U.S., the Taliban hate the U.S., and they hate a lot of the rest of the world. China's looking at it from a a global domination standpoint. Uh, Afghanistan will not be globally dominant. Dominant, Yes, they will still be a threat to many countries, to many places in the region. Um, but the bigger threat now is them giving China access. And as long as they can, as long as at the end of the day, China can put money in the bank accounts for the Taliban, uh, that's going to solve a lot of problems and that nobody's going to care. I mean, they're not, look, if the Taliban really cared about people, they wouldn't be killing all their own people. They, you know, if you know the number of people the Taliban have killed over the last 20, 30 years. And here's another little factoid too. Do you know who created the Taliban? We did. No, the Pakistani Inter-Services Intelligence Agency did. The Pakistani ISI is who created the Taliban. How so? It served a function, uh, especially after uh, Afghanistan, the first war with Russia and uh, the Mujahideen. Uh, so, uh, the Pakistani ISI created this as a means for them to to do destabilization and uh, basically uh, achieve political objectives in certain areas of the country. And, and by the way, when I said we did, I meant the current Taliban. <laughs> we made them, and we oh yeah, we made Absolutely. them one of the most extraordinarily equipped militaries on planet Earth. Yeah, it, I, it, it, I got so fuck. many friends in the military. We don't even want to go. I mean, it's like what we left behind is a um. Uh, I have to take a breath because I, I will go sideways if we talk about this too much. And I'm a nice guy. I'm a peaceful guy. I'm a fun-loving guy. But I'll tell you what, uh, yeah, this was a, a, a clusterfuck of magnitude of epic proportions. This was, a, this was a tier one, level one Charlie Foxtrot. Yes. And in addition, um, beyond disgusting in my mind, you know, Kabul is a, a city of four or five million people, if memory serves. And what I know, because I've become friends with um, an Afghani entrepreneur who lives here now, uh, is that some meaningful percentage of the people in Kabul either work directly for the U.S. military or indirectly via some kind of a contractor. And if not via some kind of a contractor, then certainly the economy in Kabul was, if not 100% supported by uh, the, the U.S. military, damn close. And so the bottom line is, if you lived in Kabul, the likelihood that you or a family member had a f- very direct or fairly direct connection to the U.S. military is reasonably high. And what that means today is that makes you a spy and that makes you dead. And they have the list of all the people and they're going after them. I mean, now look, uh, we stayed in touch with several folks, um, the National Investigative Unit, kind of their drug agency, some other folks. I was talking to Murph about this. We got contacted by people. Yeah, all of these guys that were part of uh, the operations over there, they got access to all of these files. Why? Because it's you got to have paperwork. You got to have uh, identities. Who's getting paid? You know, people working for us here and commandos, special forces people, all of them being targeted. Pilots, Afghan pilots, all being targeted. Uh, it just... Uh, um, so, there so is no good is, outcome what, with the Taliban. 
why why the fuck would the United States government, our State Department, uh, after the fall of Kabul, really done, best I can tell, a lot of fucking nothing in terms of, A, um, getting some of the Americans out that didn't get out. I know there were problems there. And B, um, these folks were our allies for 20 fucking years. We have literally left them in a living hell. And at least as of now, to the best of my knowledge, and I think I have pretty current knowledge on this, it is not possible if you're Afghani and you are an ally of the United States to get out with help from the United States. Right now, NGOs are getting people out, not our government. And so what the fuck's going on with that, Morgan? Good question. I'm, I'm out of the loop uh, on a lot of that stuff, but that's that is a tough issue because there are a lot of people now so first of all this is a this is very much a vietnam moment too with and i'm not i'm talking about it from a different not about the choppers leaving but i'm talking about we had such a relationship with what we call the mountain yards and they felt like we abandoned them especially uh, my dad was a vietnam vet and a world war ii vet was over there for that stuff so people have to rely on you um to know that hey you we're going to be there for you if anything happens we're going to get you out well when you don't then the next time when you need a country when you're trying to put a coalition together it becomes very tough for people to say, hey, yeah, you're going to take care of us. And so leaving the way we did, it's irrelevant who's in power. I'm keeping this non-political because it doesn't matter about the D, the R, or the I. The only thing people are going to see is they're not going to care who's in office. They're going to look at what did America do? What was the end result of it? And the end result is, is that they left a lot of people behind. They left a lot of equipment. They armed the Taliban with equipment. And, you know, the thing that's more offensive to me than anything else, my daughter's husband is a Marine formerly on active duty. And when the, when you had these fucking Taliban in in uh, special operator suits and with helmets recreating, planting the flag on Iwo Jima, I mean, that's just a slap in the face. And look, there is no doubt you get a squad of uh, highly trained American operators, Canadian operators, Australian operators, all the folks that were over there, they could kick these guys' ass left and right. But the thing that they have... They, they have persistence. They have been there. They have outlasted the Russian military, you know, the first invasion of Afghanistan. Obviously, they had some help from us. Read, read the book and see the movie, Charlie Wilson's War. But uh, they are now basically cemented into place. However, though, the, the Taliban are about to learn a really, really big lesson. It's not about winning the war. It's about how do you rule and how do you govern and how do you provide services to the citizens. But I will tell you the one thing I think will be different this time, Christopher, is a lot of people now have had access to technology, to cell phones, to the internet, and they've seen what's happened with the Arab Spring, or they've seen stuff in other places. So you're seeing stuff you never would have seen 20 years ago, which is people even in Afghanistan pushing back. There's some, um, at least to the extent that they can, um, protest and things like that, because they never knew that they could do it. Well, now they know they can do it. The other thing the Taliban has now that they have to worry about too, it's because of that access, they cannot control the narrative the way they did before 20 years ago. Well, they're, they're fucking trying, Morgan. Oh, they're trying. Uh, I talked to um, the head of an, an extraordinary organization yesterday called um, uh, Warrior Angels Rescue. And this is an NGO that is uh, working to get people out of Afghanistan. They've already gotten two... Uh, two groups of people out and they're working on more. And you know what she told me? The fucking Taliban, because of exactly what you just said, are bombing the electrical grid because they don't want anybody to have any power because if they don't have power, they can't access the internet. And again, as you're finding out, it takes a lot. It's, it's easy to win a war, but it takes a lot to govern 
you know, afterwards. And they're happy to keep people in the dark. They're happy to keep people in the, uh, uh, you know, 10th century, 12th century. Um, they're bombing themselves back to the Stone Age. You remember that? Let's bomb them back to the Stone Age. Well, they're fucking bombing themselves. They're doing it themselves. And that's infrastructure that will never be rebuilt. And they're doing it to our allies and friends. Yep. No, look, man, this again, this is one of those things to where um, I, I always try and be diplomatic because um, when the stuff I do, especially on television and the news, I, I, I'm, I'm non-political. It's not, I, I, I tell them I do ones and zeros, not R's and D's. I leave that to the political pundits. But as an American, as somebody who served, as somebody who served with people who serve, as somebody who knows people who are still serving, um, and look, I, I will tell you, I was up in Canada. One of the first things I did, because I support what Canada did, I know the story behind the poppies. I bought poppies. I wore poppies every day while I was up there because I respect the sacrifice people have made. And that's the thing I'm just worried about is that I just think people forget that there's no sacrifice. Uh, they, they forget the sacrifice that's being made and what people have done. And it's not just us. It's the sacrifice of our partners. How many Afghans died believing is that they were going to have a free country at the end of this whole thing? Well, and imagine an entire generation, 20 years, have grown up where they had freedom, where they had commerce, where women ha had rights for fuck's sakes and they could go to school. You know, under the Taliban, women can't go to fucking school. Oh, right? no. Under the, under the, the Taliban... If you, yeah, if you show an, if you show a quarter inch of flesh on your foot as a woman under your burqa, they may stone you to fucking death. That is real shit. My buddy Nor told, told me all about it on this fucking podcast. Oh yeah. Well, no, I, look, I was, I lived in Iran back in the day when the Shah was in power and things were much different then. Uh, there were some women who wore the hijab or the, 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 the niqab and the hijab and cause they chose to. But what, when you look at pictures of Kabul back from the fifties and the sixties, much, much different. I mean, you saw women in skirts and, you know, and out and the town was vibrant. There were areas that were, look, there's not a whole lot. I mean, agriculturally or industry wise, in Afghanistan, except for all of these natural resources that require mining to get out of. But yeah, it is, look, the other thing too, is let's let's just take a look at it from the standpoint of, in the United States, in Canada, you know, go to France or whatever, if you're gay, you can go on a street corner, you can say, I'm gay, that's fine. Try saying that in Iran, try saying that in Afghanistan, you're killed, you're stoned to death because of your sexual orientation. You're stoned to death because your hair was too long. You're killed because you might've had a friend that was associated with the Americans or the Canadians or the Australians or somebody who was considered an infidel and an enemy to your country. So um, will we ever be able, will we ever be able to fix Afghanistan? You know, maybe part of the thinking is maybe in the future, we ought to rethink about how we do stuff like this and instead think, Hey, look, um, we all know we've seen the results. Russia's tried. We've tried a longest running war in U S history. Um, everybody has tried. Everybody's tried all other things. The issue is not, can we beat them on the military? Can we beat them on the battlefield? Hands down, left and right. We've got the tech, we've got the bombers and everything. But th that's not the point. The point is, can you actually affect a lasting change that will be there for the next generation? And it is hard. You know why? Because we made the mistake thinking that uh, Afghanistan should be a democracy. Afghanistan was never designed to be a democracy. They've been a tribal, a Bedouin nation. They have never had democracy. They are, they are not designed culturally to be a democracy as much as that's what we want for them. That's not what works. Um, and I know that growing up in Iran, looking at the way things work, they don't have, name me true, one true democratic country, um, especially over in that part of the world. It's, they're tough to find. I mean, they're very tough to find. 
Well, and the interesting thing, and I'd never thought about it until Noor educated me, um, but he said it, it, it all came too much too fast. The money, the technology, mm-hmm. and the change in society, it was too radical too fast. And so there was this whiplash sort of factor to it. And as a result, culturally, it was shocking. And we pumped billions and billions and billions. And guess what? There was waste and there was fraud. And abuse. Waste, fraud, and abuse, the staples of... Hey, by the way, you just bring up a very good point. And this is an analogy I gave to somebody. Have you ever watched the Band of Brothers uh, that HBO made about Dick Winters and the uh, 82nd Airborne and, uh, you know, Charlie Company and the whole thing? If I did, it was, it was so many whiskeys ago, I don't remember. <laughs> It's it's a great series. It's based on a real book. It's based upon uh, uh, the invasion of D-Day and their liberation of France and all the countries. And they found, they, they came across, the first time they really came across um, a uh, concentration camp. And they came across the the prisoners, although this was, t- it wasn't the, in real life, it would they would have looked a lot worse, but they looked as bad as they could for television, obviously. But even then... So what did the people start thinking? They started thinking, hey, we should we, let's feed them. Let's give them food. Let's give them water. And one of the docs came up and said, no, stop. No food, no water. You know why? Exactly your point. They're not used to eating that much. You give that to them, they will kill themselves. You've got to just, you've got to basically keep them right now on starvation rations and work them slowly into it. And I think what you said was a great insight. It's the same thing you dealt with in concentration camps for people who have been systematically starved and abused like that. You can't bring them in. Somebody's got frostbite and stuff. You just don't stick them into a hot shower all at once, right? It's how do you acclimate people that they've never had this kind of money to deal with. They've never had this kind of freedom in a long time to deal with is how do you acclimate it? But I think one of the key mistakes we made was thinking that they needed to be a democracy as opposed to what's the form of government that's going to really work to get the outcomes we want, which is a free society, a society that is not a threat to its neighbors, to the United States, to the rest of the world that will not, you know, have this kind of stuff. And I think the mistake we made was thinking um, that everybody should have a country that looks like ours. And uh, as much as I love America, I love America, I love our way of system. It doesn't work. You know, it just doesn't work. Well, and and, and there, the truth is there's no other country that looks like ours. No. The United States of America is radically different. Now, I, I don't want to forget. Let's go. Let's go to ransomware. There's been a lot of talk about this. The FBI went and got all these guys. And there's been a lot of sort of it seems like ongoing dominoes about. Uh, what really happened there and the implications of of, of uh, ransomware bastards getting caught in that manner and so forth and so on. So pop the hood for me, uh, uh, Senator, uh, on ransomware. <laughs> These arrests mean nothing. And I'll tell you why. This is the equivalent of the DEA coming out and saying, hey, we have stopped drug trafficking in America. We've arrested seven guys sitting on a street corner that had two eight balls between them and we got $10,000 in cash. They arrested seven guys, maybe $6 million in Bitcoin. They have done nothing to stop ransomware. What they've done is manage the optics. They said, oh, we've we've made an arrest. Now, you know what? You really want to stop shit? Until we get extradition treaties with China and Russia, a couple other key countries, which we will never get, you will never stop ransomware. I mean, you will never stop ransomware organizations, I could say, these transnational criminal organizations. And so, yeah, you can make a few arrests, um, but... That, that that will not stop them. You know why? Because it, they are so decentralized, and many of them are working in countries where we cannot know. In fact, Canada can't do it. England can't do it. You, uh, none of the European nations can do it. You can't reach out and extradite them because they are 
they are operating under the protection. For example, the dark side gang operates out of Russia with the implicit, not explicit, but implicit approval of Vladimir Putin. As long as you are an enemy of the Russian Federation, then, hey, you, you're allowed to continue to operate. And I will tell you, one of the things that was kind of interesting is the uh, colonial pipeline hack was a bridge too far. I think people said, whoa, you know, this this is your, your, your targeting, you're really targeting critical infrastructure now. I think Vlad sent a couple of his boys over there and they kind of toned things down because then technically Darkside went out of business for a while. But that's Christopher, that's marketing. That's a business saying, hey, under new management, we've got a new name. You know, Gan Crab went out of business and then they came back. You know, we're not Facebook anymore. We're Meta. We're Meta. Oh my God. No, so, so. <laughs> Speaking I, of the evil empire, Don, 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 Don. No, no, before I go there. Um, so. <laughs> It's so easy to play ADHD fucking ping pong or fucking yep. something with you. Um, so on, on Russia, though, so in this situation where uh, you have Russian criminals pulling off ransomware hits in the United States, obviously Everywhere. there's no extradition and, and wherever they can. Um, is that doesn't that meet a, a, a maybe expanded or slightly modified definition of state sponsored terrorism? Yeah, but are you really going to go and invade Russia for a bunch of guys writing code that's that's extorting money out of people? Not going to happen. I didn't say anything about invading Russia. I just said when a government of a sovereign nation is aware that a that groups of individuals are in this case uh, holding hospital systems, yep. holding railway systems, uh, and so forth uh, hostage, and you can't operate a fucking hospital. Because Russian ransomware assholes have shut the systems down. And this, again, this is the number of attacks like this that have happened, in my opinion, are way underreported. I mean, it's happened to They were hitting a lot of small local hospitals and the like. Right. Were they not? Oh, yeah. They were hitting a bunch. Why? Because uh, these folks need to operate. It's a matter of life and death. So they're willing to pay. But to your point. To show that it's state-sponsored terrorism, you would have to show that the government itself was complicit in it. That's why I said it was implicit. You know, they they operate with the implied. Everybody uses proxies. The United States intelligence services use proxies. Russia, China, we all use third parties to go out and do things so that we can have plausible deniability. Um, Russia, you would have to show that this group is operating at the behest and at the direction with funding of the Russian Federation. And I don't think you can make, look, all they got to do is say, oh no, we're like you, we're victims, we're this, we're that. It's different than having um, the Taliban operating out of Pakistan, or it's different than having, um, uh, you know, certain terrorist groups that are, are countries that are designated uh, sponsors of terrorism. Like, for example, Iran. Iran definitely sponsors uh, terrorism. They have been known, in, fa in fact, factions that fight between Hamas and Hezbollah they're funding them both. Why? Because they're achieving the political objectives, you know, of the Islamic Republic of Iran. So until we can tie Vlad into it, it's going to be difficult or uh, Xi Jinping because they have so much layers of deniability. This is no, the Russian government doesn't do that. But even if you did, what would we do? Right. So then then my next question is, so what? Right. Now they're now we know Vlad wrote the email that says, hey, run ransomware attacks on America. Then what? I mean, we've already sanctioned Russia to the point of where I don't know how much left we have to sanction. China holds most of our debt. What are we going to do to China? Send them a sternly worded email, you know, in a fruit basket that says, hey, guys, we'd appreciate it if you'd knock this off. Yeah, no, I, I get that that's probably not going to be effective. Um, so here's the thing. And 
maybe we can't do this because we're supposed to be the guys in the white hats. You tell me. But why the fuck aren't we figuring out how to uh, pull ransomware moves and, and hold their electrical grid in our uh, the palm of our hands? You know, fight fire with fire. Um, well, we are. But we do it in a couple different ways. Number one, there's a thing called IPB, Intelligence Preparation of the Battlefield. And that's what Russia was doing with the SolarWind hacks. That's what China has done by getting into our critical infrastructures. They want to know what our vulnerabilities are. They want to know how to take us down. Make no mistake about it. I mean, while we might suck on defense, we still have really good offense too. But there, there is no... There's, but we're getting, we're seeing parity now in terms of offensive capabilities. Now, could we take down China's electrical grid? Damn skippy. I'm guaranteeing you, we can take down China's electrical grid, large parts of it. Could we do it to Russia? Absolutely, the same way Russia did it to Ukraine in December 23rd, 2015, when they launched the first successful ransomware attack. By the way, you want a quick lesson in history? Do you want to know why the Russians picked December 23rd, 2015 to launch the first black energy attack against the Zaporozhye hydroelectric plant on the Dnieper River? Because exact, exactly one year earlier, the Ukrainian parliament voted 330 to 88, I think, or something to change their status from a non-aligned nation to an aligned nation. You have to be an aligned nation to join NATO. And what does Russia not want on their border? An aligned nation. By the way, same river, same dam, was blown up by uh, Joseph Stalin and the NKVD, the Russian secret police, during 1941, November of 1941, during Operation Barbarossa, Hitler's plan to invade Russia. They did it to slow the advance of German troops. Over 100,000 Ukrainians were killed when that happened. So Russia has a unique sense of history. So the reason I'm saying that is we can sanction people, we can do stuff. What we're dealing with is, um, and until we change the way we speak about things, I can't stop you. If you decided to get into your car, Christopher, and you decided, fuck this, I'm going to go run the gates at some nuclear plant and I'm going to crash into one of the nuclear reactors. I can't stop you from thinking that because I don't know what you're thinking. But what I can do are build things to prevent, not just respond and recover, but to prevent you from getting in there. So we've got the, uh, you know, the, 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 the uh, gates that pop up that stop cars. We've got the barriers, right? And until we change our way of thinking, I will not stop China and Unit 61398 and all their other different units and the Chinese People Liberation Army from conducting attacks and reconnaissance attacks. I will not stop the Russian SVR and uh, GRU from conducting their operations. What I can do is start saying, look, what I'm going to do, though, from an economic standpoint, is make you pay such a high price every time you decide you want to attack something. I'm going to make it so costly on you that I'm going to drain your resources. And how did Ronald Reagan bring Russia to the table and solve this whole Cold War shit with Star Wars? And what he did was wasn't a lot of tech behind it. It was more of a strategy. He spent Russia into the ground. Russia was spending so much money trying to build systems and keep up with stuff. He bankrupted Russia, basically, is what happened. And until we could figure out a strategy to bankrupt them or make them pay a high economic price to say the result is not worth the investment, intelligence agencies have to make trade-offs all the time, too. I only have so much money. We only have so many people. Is it worth it for us to try and break into the, you know, the Tower of London and steal the crown jewels? Probably not, right? So what do we do? But until we change the way we think about the problem, again, I go back to the problem isn't the problem. The problem is the way we think about the problem, and that's not what counts. The problem is the way our adversaries think about the problem. That's the only problem that counts, and we're not thinking that way. And so do we have a failure of imagination, essentially? I mean, in a, in a lot of ways, Finding of the 9-11 commission? I was, well, yeah. right? I mean, in a lot of ways, it was a f at least, who the fuck knows, but 
it was a failure to believe that was possible, right? We had told airline pilots and airline crews, if you get hijacked, cooperate, you know, things along these lines, right? Our entire headset was in the wrong spot. It wasn't, we, we as a society didn't think it was possible. We've subsequently found out that our government was told um, that these things were possible and maybe they didn't do what they were supposed to do. That's a whole other conversation. But essentially is what you're telling me is whether it's ransomware or security more broadly, what we have here is a, uh, a failure of imagination. Absolutely. We are so stuck in building train tracks based on what Roman chariots did 2000 years ago, because that's the way we've always done it, right? No imagination. And that's why I think you're seeing some of the most successful companies now. SpaceX, for example, uh, Sentinel One, you know, you look at look at some of the new companies that are out there. They're changing the way we think about the problem and how we respond to the problem. And they're thinking about the problem different. For example, I go back to again, it's not the way we think about the problem. How did our adversaries think about the problem? And in fact, had they listened, you know, the other thing too is there was a serious error because I, I briefed, I, I was working at uh, DOJ on a big project on information sharing, ended up briefing uh, Ashcroft and Comey and some folks on, before they testified before the 9-11 commission on what we're doing with information sharing, things like that. Total failure of imagination. And what happened was, but you started seeing enterprising FBI agents, some intelligence analysts go, hey, we got these guys and they're all learning, you know, they're, they're all got the software and they're all learning to fly, but nobody wants to learn how to land. Okay, uh, you know, that's why it was called the Phoenix Flight Memo, you know, and it was circulated up. So, so many errors, but it goes back to your point, failure, failure of imagination. Tom Clancy, uh, a lot of the books he wrote, including one of them, I'm try I forgot, just based off the name, but the uh, pilot flies the 747 into the state capitol during the State of the Union address, kills everyone. Get, where did they get the ideas from? I mean, do you know who the CIA goes to, to get ideas on disguises and props and things to do to do their magic? Hollywood. <laughs> Hollywood. Yeah. Go watch. I mean, Argo is actually based upon some real stuff. In fact, uh, Jose Mendez, uh, who was the chief of disguise for the CIA, he died here a couple of years ago, but I actually met his wife at a, I'm a member of the Association of Former Intelligence Officers, and they would hold luncheons, and I got to meet her because they wrote some books about that. And that's one of the things, they would regularly go out to Hollywood and meet with him. What are you doing for props? What are you doing for this? So, but, but people in those things, by the way, um, you might even credit the CIA with coming up with the first iPhone in a sense, or the first pager, you know, two-way pager. These were things built around out of operational necessity. They weren't limited by what you thought. You know, they they were limited by what's the mission we need to do? How do we need to communicate? So they, their constraints were different. I just think the problem is, is we keep buying the same shit because that's all we're given. But if given a different choice today, would you go buy, uh, you know, would people go buy a sleek, like new iPhone or would they go back to a, uh, you know, you could say, you know, I would go to flip phone because I don't want all the security concerns, but I'm saying, but in terms of convenience, do you want to, do you want the the fancy sleek, you know, iPhone, or do you want to go back to a flip phone to where you had to press a three times or the number one, three times to get an a, you know, or a C or whatever it was, you know, texting like that. So if I was the CEO of a, a company of consequence and I'm listening to you and I'm sort of the dot I'm connecting as you're talking is fucking a Morgan's telling me that security is going to get harder and ransomware is going to increase. I think that's what you just told me, right? Yep. Yep. So Bank if I'm it. a CEO or I'm, I'm, uh, uh, on a board, uh, I'm a CIO, blah, blah. I'm somebody who gives a shit about the safety and security of my company from, from a technological point of view. What do I do different, uh, going forward? Good question. You know what I would do? I would challenge, 
uh, everything, challenge everything, conventional wisdom, proverbial common sense, whatever it is, challenge everything and go, why are we doing this? Are we doing this because 2,000 years ago, our forefathers drove a chariot with two horses in front of it? And that's why we've always done it. Give you another quick story too. Um, a lady, and this is this is based on that too. Another lady, she made a, a, a meatloaf or something like that one time, but then she ended up cutting off the sides and everything as she served, they go, why do you do that? Well, because my grandma did that. Well, why did she do that? Well, I don't, let's go ask her. She says, you silly girls, the only reason I did it like that is the only, that's the, it, that's the only way it would fit into the serving dish I had because it was that small. The amount of meat I had, I had to cut it to make it fit. You know, you just trace back, why are we doing these stupid things? You know, and the other thing too is never ever dismiss an idea that comes from your newest employee, you know, or junior employee. They don't come with the same baggage you do internally. You've always been there. You know, you've looked at it. You need the you need the mind of a child. Go watch the movie uh, Big with Tom Hanks, you know, and look at what happens when you put a child in an adult's body. I don't get it. It's not fun. You know, I'm sorry. I don't get it when he's demonstrating this toy. It's not fun, right? We have lost the ability. I'll tell you the other thing I would do too, Christopher, if I could, you know, Kyrie Domine, wave the, the hand and the sign of the cross. I would start saying, if your calendar, if I look at your schedule and you are booked in nothing but meetings Monday through Friday, eight to five, and you have no time on your calendar to sit and think, then you're fucking doing something wrong. We have lost the ability to sit back and just stare off into space and think about problems. Think about, you were just talking about Marty. You were just talking about that. Do you think that they invented that kind of stuff by being with their heads down in a book 24 hours a day? The, the DNA, some of the big breakthrough came in DNA from two guys going out for a walk and they ended up getting the Nobel Prize. You know, you look at some of these things, why do they allow people to take sabbaticals to recharge and rethink? We're just too much on, on, on. I just think we got to start teaching people how to think, not what to think. Quit, get out of this what to think stuff, teach them how to think and start saying, um, you have the right to challenge every assumption we've made, Right. Just don't do it just to be a peckerhead. But I mean, if you challenge it, say, here's why I'm challenging it and here's why. Why are we doing it this way? Because when I look back, it's like this, you know, it's why are we cutting the ends off the meatloaf, you know? And I guarantee you what you will find is you will find a lot of, well, this is the way you've always done it. Well, that's conventional wisdom, you know? Well, that's the way we've always done it. Well, if you keep doing what you've always done, you keep getting what you've always got, which right now is shit, you know? And we're, we are suffering as a society for it because now everything's about the only thing you can't hack anymore is a brick. And I think if you put an Ethernet port in a brick, somebody would figure out how to hack it. But <laughs> short of that, now, man. I, now, I'm curious. Uh, um, by the way, it's been a while since I heard somebody say peckerhead, so you get points for that. Um, now, I'm curious, uh, what percentage do you have a, a sense or do you know, Morgan, of these, uh, whether they're hacks and attacks or whether they're ransomware attacks? Um are start with a phishing problem. That is to say, you get an email, there's a URL in that fucking email, and you click on that URL, and all of a sudden, there's evil shit on your computer, and the bad, the bad sequence starts. And so I guess my question is, how much of the problem is human in that we click on stupid shit? I think it's less than that, and I'll tell you why. I and I did a webinar here a while back with Nicole Perlroth. Uh, she's the New York Times reporter, and she goes, she wrote a book called "This the, 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 This Is the End of the World," or the, "The End of the World as We Know It." Um, and a lot of this stuff now is moving to zero day exploits. I mean, we're we're piling up. When you've read the latest uh, stories about the Israeli firm called NSO what they did with their Pegasus spyware, the way that they used an exploit, a zero-day exploit in this Safari mobile browser. They had zero-touch infection, zero-click infection. You didn't have to click on anything. They could infect your iPhone if they knew 
your iPhone. If they just all they had to do is get your number and they could infect you. Um, and so I think we've moved away now from that to where we're stockpiling zero days like a nuclear arsenal. You know, we, we need this for something that's going to happen. Uh, and they've kind of created a market for it, too. So I think don't get me wrong. Uh, phishing emails are still uh, still phishing. Actually, spear phishing is still like the number one tactic for intelligence agencies to compromise somebody. But I think you're seeing a shift to say, if that doesn't work, we need to be able to stockpile zero days so that we have in a way. And one of the most uh, flagrant ones with that was Adobe Flash. You know, there's so many things, you know, with Flash, right? Steve Jobs railed against Flash, but... You do know that Rob Burgess, the CEO of Macromedia, is a, is a longtime buddy of mine. Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, because I remember you guys helped pull that whole kind of, you talked about in the book, pulling that strategy together, right? Well, yeah, and that's actually where uh, Al Ramadan and I met, and we worked. That was the first major thing that we worked on uh, the category design for Macromedia that led to a lot of good things. And uh, but yes, yeah, so I'm I'm very f uh, familiar with Flash and the goodness and the badness that came with Flash. Well, but anything, anytime you have anything that comes out to where it's like, hey, uh, you know, we've got all this great capability. Look, Flash for what it did, you know, the experience people could get over the web. But the thing is, it introduced so many security holes, and um, and nobody has all of the visibility they need. Uh, there's just no way you write code. There's no way you know every hole that's in that code, right? So they they stockpile these things and what they hope, and they they got people. Look, uh, you read her book, uh, Nicole Perlroth's Perlroth's book, uh, or this is how they tell me the world is going to end. Um, they there are some foreign hostile intelligence agencies or countries or other things that are willing to pay upwards of a million dollars for a zero day exploit. That's how important these things have become. Excellent. Uh, now, <laughs> now that it sucks, ready, man. Let's talk about that you've completely or, freaked me out about my digital life. Um, let's talk maybe a little bit about uh, game of crimes, game of crimes, the biggest, baddest, most dangerous game of all the game. of yeah. crimes, And, let me just say one thing off the top, and that is my attitude towards uh, true crime media is very different, having lived through what I've lived through, the, the murder of a dear friend. And I now refer to them as the murder monetizing media. And it's disgusting to me that there, are, there is so much media who views murder as content. and. Um, and I think, and there, I th there's data and research to show this, it really uh, with Columbine was a demarcation point. The amount of publicity that murderers and mass murderers um, uh, and psycho killers get today, it's just accelerated over time, right? And we know Jeffrey Dahmer's name. We don't know the name of any of his victims, right? So, so there has become this disgusting celebration adulation and fame-making machine for murderers. And these media companies make hundreds of millions of dollars a year monetizing murder, and it's fucking disgusting. Now, all that said, here's why I love what you're doing. People do not understand the side of the story that you're telling, which is the fact that the women and men who work in peacekeeping and law enforcement in our country and around the world are fucking heroes. And I know this in a way that I could not know as a regular citizen who had not experienced 
the loss of a brother that was murdered and watched closely how our sheriff's department brought that evil to justice and now how our DA's office is continuing through the legal system to make sure they never breathe free air again. And we did a, you know, cause we're all entrepreneurs and tech guys. And we sat down recently, all of my buddy's friends, and we were talking about the investigation and how thorough it's been and the forensics and all the time and all that. And we just tried to do a back of the envelope. And our, our guesstimate is that if a private company or a startup had tried to uh, conduct the investigation and then uh, arrest and now prosecution um, that is taking place in the murder of our brother, um, it would have been at least $5 million to get the party started. And probably by the time it's all said and done, it could easily be double that amount. And what I've come to learn is not only is the money and technology and so forth that gets put against a murder investigation extraordinary, the women and men who are the public servants who do this. There, I am not somebody who is often uh, challenged with words. These people are fucking angels. They're heroes. They could all be making more money in other places. And they choose to truly serve. I can tell you, we have a legendary sheriff's department. I can tell you, we have a legendary DA's office. So that's a long-winded way of saying <laughs> in the true crime category, the vast majority of podcasts and the vast majority of media celebrate the murderer and sensationalize the killing in a painful, disgusting, fucking evil way. And you and Murph, on the other hand, are bringing people inside. You're showing them these incredible public servants who do this in insanely hard work with state-of-the-art technology and bring evil to justice. And so for that, Morgan Wright, I want to say thank you. Well, you know, you inspired that too. When we had, you had Murph and JP on and you talk about, we talked about, we've done this before too, long form. When Murph and I were sitting down talking about this, we said, hey, we want to do something different. We don't want to profit off the misery of others, which is exactly what you're talking about. It's profiting off the misery of others. Instead, what we wanted to do is we want to say, what's the other side of the story for both the people who enforce the law and the people who broke the law? What's their story? So our second interview was George Young, Pablo's business partner, the last podcast interview he did before he died back in May. This is the guy Johnny Depp played in the movie Blow. This is the guy who was responsible for 80% of the cocaine. We didn't glorify what he did, but when you listen to his life, how he got into it, what he did, it was fascinating to understand what circumstances led him to do what he did. We had Dave Reichert, the lead investigator for the Green River Killer. This guy's 20 years of his law enforcement career was dedicated to nothing more than finding Gary Ridgway. And Gary Ridgway was a piece of shit. This guy killed at least 51 women that we know of that he's been tied to and has pled guilty to 49. Two more cases been tied to him uh, with, with, you know, unequivocally. He may have killed upwards of 70, right? This isn't about glorifying. This is understanding what was the pain and suffering of the victims. What did the victims go through? What did, you know, what, what's it really like to be a victim 
uh, you know, this, so yeah, we, we spent no time glorifying them. Uh, we talked about Murph's partner that was shot during a raid, watched his informant get shot through the throat and killed, die right in front of him. We talk about Michael Neal, the Arkansas game and fish officer who uh, got into a shootout with two sovereign citizens who had just shot and killed two West Memphis police officers. Um, we've got Joe Pierce coming up this week. Uh, I'm not sure when this will come out, but it'll be uh, November, uh, let's see, uh, 9th. Uh, yeah, it's actually came out uh, yesterday, November 8th, and then 11th is part two. He's DA agent serving over in Afghanistan, trying to stop the Taliban from getting that shot through the head. We've got, you know, we've got, and we've, but we've had uh, people again from both sides of the law. Ken Rijok uh, was the the laundry man. He, this guy was the full, first bulk cash money launderer. We talked to him and every one of these ones, especially the ones on the other side of the law, we've got Luis Navia coming up. He's just got a book coming out called Pure Narco. Pop coming out of Venezuela with 9,000 kilos. To this day, they thank law enforcement for saving their life because there is no retirement, for example, in the dope business. There's only, you either get a bullet in the head or you end up in prison. That's the retirement plan. And so to hear their human's tales about what they went through and to humanize uh, you know, the, the law enforcement side of it. To your point, you and I have talked about Tushar's case. We've talked about the stuff that goes into it and how long of a process it's gonna be to finally get justice. But here's the thing. There's no, the other thing we've come to realization is there's no such thing uh, as closure. There's only resolution. You will never get closure. I mean, you will never get over Tushar being shot and killed, but you will have resolution to say, to your point, the guys who did it, they're never gonna see another free day of sunlight in their life. That doesn't make things any better. So. It's really taking people on the inside of what it's like to be on these cases. Uh, we actually have an interview coming up with a woman police officer out of Richmond, Virginia, who was shot in the face by a guy who had just shot and killed three people, wounded a deputy. Um, and we've got a Georgia Bureau of Investigation agent, a lady who investigated a horrific sexual trafficking case involving children, right? So, you know, we, we don't, uh, I can guarantee you this. There is no glorification of scumbags and criminals on this. In fact, what we do is it's the opposite way around. Uh, in fact, you know, um, Murph was on uh, YouTube, a podcast with a very famous comedian, uh, Tom Segura. Tom has got a big pod. Tom Segura went into this uh, podcast interview with Murph glorifying, thinking Pablo was kind of a modern day Robin Hood. By the time Murph got done educating him, he says, you know something? You did something I never thought you could do. You changed my mind about it. When people understand the real story of what people like Pablo Escobar did, how many thousands of people died because of him, how many, what, you know what it was like for a woman to be strangled from behind by Gary Ridgway, what her last moments on earth were like as she's, as she's having the life, only to be dumped like a piece of garbage in a collection of other bodies down by the Green River, which is why they got the, called him the Green River Killer. So no, very much to your point. And that's why we do long form. We do not do this short, commercially appealable. Well, we have the huge audiences that some of these other one folks do. No, but I guarantee you this, by the time you're done, we go through four phases. Let's talk about why you got into this business, whether it's law enforcement or the criminal side. Let's set context now. Let's understand what it is we're gonna talk about. So let's set the stage for drug trafficking or money laundering or human sex trafficking, whatever it is. Then let's talk about the case we're gonna talk about. Let's get into the details. And then we talk about what are you doing now? And so most of our interviews are three and a half, you know, three to three and a half hours long and we break them into two parts. So, uh, you know, very much we wanted to get in on the long form stuff you will hear here, here, here that you will not hear anywhere else. Um, and quite frankly, as as we as I did your podcast and I talked to Murph, I said, it's gotta be this. Number one, we're not gonna do, hey, let's talk about the happy face, you know, killer and let's talk about Keith Jesperson and what he did, or let's talk about Ted Bundy. I don't give a fuck about Ted Bundy. 
Ted Bundy did nothing but kill. You know what he did to the girls in the sorority house, the way he beat them with a piece of wood? How can you glorify anybody like that? So I'm spot on with you. We will not profit off the misery of others. Instead, we're giving people the inside story, stuff they never heard about before. Jeff Nice, uh, the guy who was on the Montgomery County SWAT team during the D.C. Snipers. What was it like to respond to those things? Do stuff like that. So very much stories you're not going to hear anywhere else. And I guarantee you, you will not hear them in soundbite 30-minute podcasts that are designed only to titillate and stimulate you and get you wondering, okay, who did they kill next? There is there's no glory in that. Thank you. Because, and I could not have appreciated this before this horrible experience. The level of commitment the level of investment, the level of resource it takes to solve a murder is extraordinary. And I have come to learn that only six out of 10 murders in our country ever get solved. 40% of families never get that resolution. And I have come to learn that the women and men who do this work are fucking angels on this earth. And so help me think about how you think about policing now, Morgan. We saw this whole defund the police thing. There are actually places that did that. Uh, the murder rate is up. I'll, I'll double check as we're talking, but I think no, it's I can, up. I can tell you that murder rate went up 30% year over year from 2019 okay. to 2020. And the CDC says this is the highest homicide rate we've had in the last 100 years. Okay. I thought it was 30%, but thank you. So, so what the fuck's going on with law enforcement, and specifically with Americans killing Americans. What the fuck is going on in California when our governor, at the behest of the ACL fucking you, releases 63 violent criminals to reduce our, uh, our jail sizes during COVID? We seem to have lost our mind about law enforcement and crime and punishment in this country. Now, I know, you know, I feel this in a way most people don't. So you could argue with me that I'm overreacting. But a 30% increase in murder is fucking shocking. Yeah, and I know there's been a lot of attention paid to COVID and the deaths from COVID. Um, and that is that is an issue that we deal with from a, you know, public health standpoint. You know, we, we, we won't go sideways and talk about the origin of it and stuff. But what we're talking about now is stuff that will be with us forever. In other words, when you have something, homicide rates, if they keep going up, there is a cost to society. I mean, a huge cost to society. And actually, your numbers are probably fairly close. Uh, several years ago, I remember hearing the superintendent of the Chicago police, when they were talking about installing cameras and trying to reduce crime, they estimated the cost of to the city, to the citizens, was at a minimum $1 million per homicide. That's what it costs them, just, just at a bare minimum, every homicide. So when you want to talk about real dollars and real impact, yeah, the number of people dying, it is, you know, here's what's happened. I think we've gotten this thing is that uh, you saw Minneapolis respond to this, and they, they've rejected it overwhelmingly to say, we're not going to defund the police. We're not going to create this Department of Public Safety. We're not going to get rid of it. Why? Because there are real-world consequences when you, when you take away law enforcement. Now, I say that to say this. Is there any, name me one industry that it does not have its challenges and is in need of improvement. Everybody has it. Law enforcement does, firefighting does, teaching does, podcasting. Hell, I, I still got a lot of shit to learn, you know? We have a lot of, there are, there is no industry that is immune from this. 
But the difference between all those under industries and this is in none of those other industries, unless you're in public safety, and I include firefighters, paramedics, do they go to work each day knowing that they're going to see the worst thing that's ever that you're ever going to see in your life, potentially that day? How many people go to work other than the military and strap on 25 pounds of equipment and body armor each day? You know, you look at the firefighters who have to don their bunker gear and they go, I mean, look, I was a cop for a lot of years. I saw a lot of shit. I, well, one thing I would not do is go running into a burning building. My hat's off to the people. We give firefighters a lot of shit and need, and rightly so, because they sleep and eat 24 hours a day and have the best chow. But, uh, you know, but, but for them to do what they do. So I think what we've lost, Christopher, and it gets back into this whole issue of, I think, the, the true crime podcast, the one of some of the ones that are popular, we have desensitized people so much is that they've lost the understanding what the value of a human life is, whether it's here whether it's uh, in Afghanistan. And one of the lines I have always uh, encapsulated, and um, and it's, it's Michael Connolly wrote it about it in all of his Harry Bosch books and on the Prime episode. Harry Bosch had a saying that says, either everybody counts or nobody counts. You don't get to make choices on which murder counts. Your murder does not count more than my murder. I have a dead body, you have a dead body. They are equal. And in fact, the uh, organization I belong to, the International Homicide and uh, Investigators uh, Organization, IHIO, um, Basically, there's a saying that says there's no greater honor you can bestow upon a police officer than the investigation into the death of another human being. That is the greatest honor you will ever have as a police officer. And that's something, to your point, when you see these folks working it, you take it seriously. I just think we've lost the respect and the understanding of what the value of a human life is. We don't treat people that same way. And look, are there bad cops out there? Let me tell you, Murph and I say this all the time. Nobody hates a bad cop more than a good cop. But I will tell you this, though, too, don't paint a broad brush over every cop and say all cops are bastards, because I guarantee you this. Here's the example I give. You don't like cops. You don't like this. Well, I'll tell you what. What if I said I'm going to pull out a baseball bat and I'm going to start beating the ever-loving shit out of you right now? What are you going to do? You're going to who are you going to call? You're going to you're going to I want justice. I want this guy arrested. You you at the end of the day, you're going to call the police. So let's not let's not create this fiction is that all cops are bastards and you don't want the police. What we want is we want the true spirit of what community policing was. We go back to Sir Robert Peel from 1839, I think it was, his 10 uh, Peelian principles of policing. Principle number seven, I think it was, or six said, the police are the public and the public are the police. The police being the only member of society paid to give due time and attention to matters which are otherwise incumbent upon everybody. And that means we're all in this together, brother. You know, you and I, we we approach it different ways. We have different roles. But what you did for Tushar, what you did for that county, what you did in that homicide investigation, if one-tenth of one percent of the people would have the same involvement and the same attitude you did, you would see crime plummet. You know why? Because there would be accountability. There would be a shared responsibility that says we're all on this little third rock from the sun together. Either we 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 survive together or we perish together. And I plan on surviving. So you know, if you're with me and we're in the same boat, you know, I'm with you. And if you're not, that's your right. But at the end of the day, we need police, we need fire, we need emergency medical, we need an effective government. Don't get me wrong, we still need government, but we need an effective government. Uh, we need kids to be taught. We need all of these things. But you can no more say we don't need the police than you say we don't need the fire department or we don't need an ambulance. It infuriates me. And uh, just look, I'm not an expert in policing. Do there need to be reforms? Do there need well, have to be you ever changes? been arrested, Christopher? <laughs> <laughs> Come on, you can tell me. Tell hard me the truth now. <laughs> hard to believe, I know. I, I swear to God. With all those tattoos, man, I thought you did hard time or you were freeze-dried or something, man. Right? I mean, I just look like I should be a criminal, right? Or at least, apparently, that's what some people <laughs> think. Oh, uh, fuck. Well, thank you for Game of Crimes. 
Thank you. I think um, it's much, much needed. And my hope uh, through your work is that more people will realize how lucky we are. I feel lucky now that I know living where I live, I know what kind of man our sheriff is. I know what kind of people work in law enforcement in my community. I know the extraordinary lengths to which incredible CSIs have gone to make sure that the evidence was processed. I I see the work that the DA's office has done and how intelligent they are and how committed they are uh, and, and how they're with us when we weep. And so uh, my hope is that people stop listening to these fucking podcasts and TV shows and the like that glorify the killers. And if you're interested in true crime, get interested in the people who work with the victims, the extraordinary public servants who bring pure fucking evil to justice every day. And they put their fucking lives on the live on the line for our lives. And, and I wish people could have experienced what we have experienced in terms of seeing this commitment, seeing this work take place by these extraordinary angel fucking public servants. Yeah. We want people to get the experience. We just don't want you to have to go through the experience. Cause I, I wouldn't wish that on anybody. You know what you went, look, I remember you called me that morning. You know, and we had that chat, right? And what's, it's the tough, it's a tough chat to have, but you know, it's one of those things like I told you, hang on, brother, you know, it's going to take time. It's going to be complex, but again, follow the money, follow the people. We, we all, we all knew at that point, Tushar knew who these guys were, you know, it was pretty evident and law enforcement worked its way into it. And now, you know, now you've got, again, you're going to get resolution. You will never get closure. Closure is a fiction, but I think resolution is what we can hope for. But hey, look, I will tell you, the other thing too is I love what the chief of police back when he was in Dallas before he went to Chicago and they were talking when the five police officers were killed down there uh, during that protest and that riot. He says, look, you want to solve problems? You, you think we're doing something wrong? Then apply, put on a uniform, get in here and be a part of the solution. Quit being a part of the problem. And all I would say is that, look, um, if you want change, go about it the right way. You, but you don't get change by burning down shit. By the way, you were talking about what's the status? Portland needs 300 police officers. You know where all those 300 police officers went? Other agencies. Portland will not get 300 police officers anywhere in the near future. So shit's going to, bad things are going to happen. Because their fucking mayor doesn't support the police. Well, now, but now they do now because guess what? Crime is going up. People are getting impacted. There's a real world impact to having the CHOP district. There's a real world impact to allowing buildings to burn and small businesses to burn. So at the end of the day, you know who really suffers um, is you and me, brother. You and me, we're, we're the citizens that we're paying. We're paying for the mistakes that are being made. If I could do one thing, I would make every fucking politician who lives out there live under the same laws they want everybody to live under, whether you're a senator or a congressman, whatever else. Go live in these communities. One of the biggest things that happened with law enforcement, I think to give them a better perspective, was the adoption of community policing, true community policing. But when people started living in the areas that they had to serve, they had a vested interest in it. You know, you've got to have that proprietary interest. Nobody loves a neighborhood more than the people who live in the neighborhood, right? Well, we got to get back to that sense of community, that sense of uh, uh, shared responsibility. I'm not talking about that it takes a village to raise a child. Uh, You know, everybody has a philosophy. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about you're my neighbor. I'm your neighbor. I look out for all my other neighbors here. You know, if something goes on, 
I'm there, you know, we're there to help each other. Why? Because I want them to do the same thing for me if anything were to happen. I, I'm not, I'm not going to ignore stuff. Well, it's, it's not my house. It's not my problem. Well, damn right. It's my problem. You're in my neighborhood. I can't control every area, but this is my area. And we're going to, we're going to, we're going to take care of each other in our area. And if we do our job right, other people will take care of their area. And guess what? At the end of the day, it'll mean the police can now actually focus on, they go, when they go, I used to love people said, well, don't you have anything better to do instead of doing this or doing that? I would, except I ran into you today. If you weren't doing what you're doing, I'd be out doing the other thing, like finding drug traffickers and criminals. And But you know, yeah, we would love to be able to focus on the things that really impact society. Things like fentanyl right now, things like the homicide rate, things like sexual predators and human sex trafficking. But you can't do that if you are going call to call to call, responding to buildings that are burning down, people that are being assaulted, because we have civil disorder. We got to get back to being a civil society, and everybody's got a responsibility for that. Amen. Hallelujah, brother. Morgan Wright, I could talk to you forever. Uh, and I know you've got a world to go save and uh, security technology companies to build. And I'm going to be on Cheddar TV in 40 minutes. You do. You are everywhere, man. You are on every fucking. You are. Are you America's? You have to be America's number one security TV no, guy. No, I, you know what? By the way, at the end of the day, you know what? If if uh, if there's something more sensational, to your point, salacious. If there's a homicide or a shooting, that's what gets the news, right? It's not. I tell people, look, I, I know my place, and I love doing what I do, given different perspective. But at the end of the day, you know, um, we are all. The stuff that I talk about isn't top tier stuff because, but it's good to fill the void. It's good to educate people. But at the end of the day, if you're about to talk about, um, um, you know, the latest ransomware attack and what it means versus uh, we've just had a multiple shooting at a mall, the multiple shooting at the mall is always going to get the coverage and get the headlines. Well, it makes sense because it's a unique kind of terror. Um Anyway, I appreciate you uh, investing this time. I, I appreciate seeing you on TV and uh, you just seem to be everywhere in the media. And, and I think it's important for law enforcement leaders, particularly at this time, to be uh, out in the public. Um, and thank you for your new podcast. And uh, please uh, give Murph a big uh, hug and a big high five for me. Uh, he's one of those guys that I have a gigantic man crush on. <laughs> well, he just moved to Florida, too. So the bastard, the traitorous bastard, left me up here in Virginia and moved to Florida. So he's down in Orlando next to his uh, kids and stuff like that. So, But they loved when they lived down in Miami, they loved it. So he's back in the land of the fun and the sun and alligators. He's got a 10-foot and a 6-foot alligator that visit his backyard now on a regular basis. Well, he's so tough, he just probably has tea with them because they're terrified of him. <laughs> well, I think he's going to be wearing a new pair of boots if one of them doesn't start acting appropriately here pretty soon. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody should explain to those alligators who Murph is, just in case they're confused. <laughs> yeah. Hey, have you watched Narcos? <laughs> exactly. If not, you're the only person in the country who has it. All right, Dr. Wright, anything else before we wrap? No, man. Thanks again. It's always fun being on because you know what? Even though we're kind of ADHD TV, you know, and we're going all over the place. Um, I will tell you, we'll tease this for later. I actually just received a patent on how to use publicly available information to solve crime um, and generate systems. And I'm working on a radical. And you talk about, guarantee you, I'll talk to you about this on something that can't be recorded, but a radical, we are going to create a brand new category of crime and what you can do with crime and how you can go about solving crime. And it's, it's not in the way most people think, but it's uh, uh, the patent is going to be a part of it. And we just actually had this discussion this morning and combining forces together. 
it's going to be it's going to take advantage of some of the things that are in the news right now and what people are doing, but it's going to be in a very unique, different way. Well, if anybody can create a new category of crime fighting and crime fighting technology, it's Morgan Wright. And it will be based upon the fact is that I have read the book multiple times, Play Bigger. And I think you were have something to do with that. Man, I talk about it all the, we are going to solve a problem people didn't know they had. We're also going to solve a problem people thought couldn't be solved. And we're going to prosecute the magic triangle. We're going to make people clearly understand what we're doing, what our point of view is, and then we're going to execute on it. You are a very good, uh, very, very good student, young Jedi. Sensei. (laughs) (laughs) When the student is ready, the master will appear. Apparently so. (laughs) Morgan Wright, thank you. I love you. You're awesome. Please come back soon. Anytime. Anytime, mate. Well, there he is. (laughs) The legendary Morgan Wright. Don't forget to check out his new podcast called Game of crimes. Uh, it is an absolutely stunning uh, piece of work. Uh, and if you enjoyed this podcast as much as I had uh, enjoyed having the conversation with Morgan, why not share it with somebody that you uh, think would get a kick out of it or would be um, uh, intrigued by Morgan's <laughs> Morgan's brain? Uh, when you share this show, it makes a huge difference and we deeply appreciate it. All right. We would like to thank our good friends at Autranet, A-T-R E.net building legendary B2B websites in Silicon Valley for over 20 years. Our friends at bottleneck.online are the world's first dedicated distant assistants, making sure that uh, you can scale you with the power of a real person who's an assistant who is, is and never will get anywhere near you. My friends at flowkiosk.com are the leaders in iPad kiosks. They are how you engage digitally in an analog place. Check out flow kiosk.com today. All right, I need to remind you that today's information is provided to you solely for informational purposes, and this oddcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. This oddcast also has known properties to the state of California that causes different thinking. All rights do remain perturbed. We're produced and edited by the GOAT, the greatest of all time, Jason DeFilippo. And uh, he started a new uh, newsletter as well lately that I'm a huge fan of. It's for anybody who is uh, thinking about or in the process of changing careers or jobs or companies. It's called The Pivoteer. You see, Jason has pivoted many times in his career, and now he's sharing his uh, uh, hard knock one secrets. Go to substack.com and search for The Pivoteer. Sarah Knox and Jamie Jay do legendary technical execution around here, and they build Lockhead.com. Show notes by the handsome talented GM Simon. Please remember to uh, spread podcasts, not viruses. And for the love of God or whoever else you love, please, if you live in the United States, remember the left lane is the fast lane. Get out of the left-hand lane. Uh, also, you should know that your uh, spouse texted, and it's okay. You can go ahead and subscribe to Category Pirates. <laughs> Recent newsletters, or as we refer to them, mini books, include Engineering Exponential Moments. It's one of our most personally thought-provoking uh, mini book books of late. The Big Brand Live. Personal Branding. Why Personal Branding is the Me Disease. The Power of a Point of View. The Category Design Scorecard, No Ocean Strategy, and much more. Go to CategoryPirates.com today. Don't forget to listen to Katie Lang. Joey Ramone was right. Spread dialogue podcasts, would you? Not viruses. Uh, thank you, Candy Dandy. She keeps all the trains running on time. I love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? 
Today, our deepest apologies go to Scott Omelonic, editor of Inc. Magazine. Sorry, Scotty. We just ran out of time for you. That's it, my friends. Thank you so much for investing part of your life with us. Really means the world to me. Uh, Please stay healthy, stay legendary, and until we hang out next, follow your difference.